0: This is the Marvelous People Horror Stories Podcast. Welcome, you marvelous person. You're marvelous because you're listening, and I'm grateful. I'm Robert Crandall. I recently received an email from a marvelous listener named Walter, and he writes, Hello, Mr. Crandall. Thank you for taking the time out to create your podcast and bless us with your horror stories. I listened to your podcast regularly uh, about two years ago and just recently was able to listen while at work again. It took me a bit of searching to find your podcast again. I couldn't remember the name to search for. I knew if I heard your voice, I would recognize it at once. Sure enough, after listening to a few moments of numerous podcasts, I heard that one-of-a-kind voice, and knew I had finally found it. I can now go about my work while listening to you telling the best horror stories on all the internet. Thanks again. Sincerely, Walter. Okay. Thank you for that wonderful email, Walter. And I'm glad you found the show. And I hope you'll tell a friend. And just remember... Horror Stories is the website, or my name, Robert Crandall Podcast, and it should come up. Now, for this episode, we have a horror word of the day, which is decompose, spelled D E C O M P O S E. From Merriam Webster means. To undergo destructive dissolution often connotes foulness and implies a slow change from a state of soundness or perfection, often accompanied by a pungent odor. And the word is used in our feature story. I hope you enjoy The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. Sedebis ut saltem placidis in morte quisca, Virgil. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence, those isolated phenomena, seen and felt only by the psychologically sensitive few, which lie outside its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them, but the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from the earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary, wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life. And temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreations of my acquaintances, I have dwelt ever in realms apart from the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little known books, and in roaming the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there. But of this I must say little, since detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect, which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do, for lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not or are no longer living. Close by my home, there lies a singular wooded hollow. In those twilight deeps, I spent most of my time reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down its moss-covered slopes my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of these trees, and often. I have watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of a waning moon. But of these things I must not now speak. I will tell only of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the Hides, an old and exalted family whose last direct descendant has been laid within its black recesses many decades before my birth. The vault to which I refer is of ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mist and dampness of generations. Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance. The door, a ponderous and forbidding slab of stone, hangs upon rusted iron hinges and is fastened ajar in a queerly sinister way, by means of heavy iron chains and padlocks, according to a gruesome fashion of half a century ago. The abode of the race whose scions are here inurned had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb, but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a disastrous stroke of lightning. Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed, in uneasy voices, alluding to what they call divine wrath, in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest-darkened sepulcher. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the hides was buried in this place of shade and stillness, the sad, earnful ashes had come from a distant land, to which the family had repaired when the mansion burned down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few cared to brave the depressing shadows which seemed to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon when I first stumbled upon the half-hidden house, of death. It was in midsummer, when the alchemy of nature transmutes the sylvan landscape to one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green, when the sensors are well nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors of the soil and vegetation. In such surroundings the mind loses its perspective, time and space become trivial and unreal, and echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beat insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I had been wandering through the mystic groves of the hollow, thinking thoughts I need not discuss, and conversing with things I need not name in years a child of ten, I had seen and heard many wonders, unknown to the throne, and was oddly aged in certain respects, when upon forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault. I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the door so curiously ajar, in the funereal carvings above the arch, aroused in me no associations of mournful or terrible character. Of graves and tombs, I knew and imagined much, but had, on account of my peculiar temperament, been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries. The strange stone house on the woodland slope was to me only a source of interest and speculation. In its cold, damp interior, into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly left, contained for me no hint of death or decay. But in that instant of curiosity was born the madly unreasoning desire which has brought me to this hell of confinement, spurred on by a voice which must have come from the hideous soul of the forest. I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom in spite of the ponderous chains which barred my passage. In the waning light of day I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view to throwing wide the stone door and essayed to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided, but neither plan met with success. At first curious, I was now frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, I had sworn to the hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would someday force an entrance to the black chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. The physician with the iron-gray beard who comes each day to my room once told a visitor that this decision marked the beginning of a pitiful monomania but I will leave final judgment to my readers when they shall have learnt all. The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complicated padlock of the slightly open vault, and in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. With the traditional receptive ears of the small boy, I learned much, though an habitual secretiveness caused me to tell no one of my information or my resolve. It is perhaps worth mentioning that I was not at all surprised or terrified on learning of the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death had caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion, and I felt that the great and sinister family— of the burned-down mansion was in some way represented within the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door I would sit for hours at a time each day. Once I thrust a candle within the nearly closed entrance— but could see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downward. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb— I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's Lives in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by that passage telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny, whenever he should become old enough to lift the enormous weight. The legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself, I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavily chained door with ease. But until then, I would do better by conforming to what seemed to be the will of fate accordingly my watches by the dank portal became less persistent and much of my time was spent on other equally strange pursuits i would sometimes rise very quietly in the night stealing out to walk in those churchyards and places of burial from which i had been kept by my parents what i did there i may not say for I am not now sure of the reality of certain things, but I know that on the day after such a nocturnal ramble, I would often astonish those about me with my knowledge of topics almost forgotten for many generations. It was after a night like this that I shocked the community with a queer conceit about the burial of the rich and celebrated Squire Brewster, a maker of local history, who was interred in 1711, and whose slate headstone bearing a graven skull and crossbones was slowly crumbling to powder. In a moment of childish imagination I vowed not only that the undertaker, Goodman Simpson, had stolen the silver buckled shoes, silken hose, and satin small clothes of the deceased before burial but that the squire himself, not fully inanimate, had turned twice in his mound-covered coffin on the day after interment. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts, being indeed stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery that my own material ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct, family of the hides last of my paternal race i was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line i began to feel that the tomb was mine and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time when i might pass within that stone door and down those slimy stone steps in the dark I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I had a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained facade of the hillside, allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like the walls and roof of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple, the fastened door my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts, and dreaming strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one. I must have fallen asleep from fatigue for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that I heard the voices of those tones and accents I hate to speak, of their quality I will not speak, but I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed represented in that shadowy colloquy, though it was only later that I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from this matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting that I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that as I awoke a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulchre. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home I went with much directness to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key which next day unlocked with ease the barrier. I had so long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of late afternoon that I first entered the vault on the abandoned slope. A spell was upon me, and my heart leaped with an exultation I can but ill describe. As I closed the door behind me and descended the dripping steps by the light of my lone candle, I seemed to know the way and though the candle sputtered with the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty, charnel-house air. Looking about me, I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins, or the remains of coffins. Some of these were sealed and intact, but others had nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate I read the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who had come from Sussex in 1640 and died here a few years later. In a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket, adorned with a single name which brought to me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn I staggered from the vault and locked the chain of the door behind me. I was no longer a young man. Though but twenty-one winters had chilled my bodily frame, early rising villagers who observed my homeward progress looked at me strangely and marveled at the signs of ribald rivalry which they saw in one whose life was known to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long and refreshing sleep. Henceforward I haunted the tomb each night Seeing, hearing, and doing things I must never reveal, my speech, almost susceptible to environmental influences, was the first thing to succumb to the change, and my suddenly acquired archaism of diction was soon remarked upon. Later a queer boldness and recklessness came into my demeanor, till I unconsciously grew to possess the bearing of a man of the world despite my lifelong seclusion." My formerly silent tongue waxed voluble with the ease grace of a Chesterfield or the godless cynicism of a Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition, utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore over which I had poured in youth, and covered the fly leaves of my books with facile impromptu epigrams, which brought up the suggestions of gay, prior, and the sprightliest of Augustan wits and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast I came close to disaster by declaiming impalpably licorice accents, an infusion of eighteenth-century bacchanalian mirth, a bit of Georgian playfulness never recorded in a book, which ran something like this. Come hither, my lads, with your tankards of ale." and drink to the present before it shall fail. Pile each of your platter a mountain of beef, for tis eating and drinking that bring us relief. So fill up your glass, for life will soon pass. When you're dead you'll ne'er drink to your king or your lass. A Necrian had a red nose, so they say, but what's a red nose if you're happy and gay? Gad split me. I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and dead half the year. So Betty, my miss, come give me a kiss. In hell there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. Young Harry, propped up just as straight as he's able, will soon lose his wig and slip under the table. But fill up your goblets and pass them around, better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chaff. As ye thirstily quaff. Under six feet of dirt tis less easy to laugh. The fiends strike me blue, I'm scarce able to walk. And damn me if I can stand upright or talk. Here landlord bid Betty to summon a chair. I'll try home for a while, for my wife is not there. So lend me a hand, I'm able to stand but I'm gay whilst I linger on top of the land. About this time I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms. Previously indifferent to such things, I had now an unspeakable horror of them, and would retire to the innermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display.' A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down, and in fancy I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow sub-cellar, of whose existence I seemed to know in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. At last came that which I had long feared. My parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage, which threatened to result in disaster. I had told no one of my visits to the tomb, having guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood but now I was forced to exercise care in threading the mazes of the wooded hollow that I might throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault I kept suspended from a cord about my neck, its presence known only to me. I've never carried out of the sepulchre any of the things I came upon whilst within its walls. One morning as I emerged from the damp tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld, in an adjacent thicket, the dreaded face of a watcher. Surely the end was near, for my bower was discovered, and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home, in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. WERE MY SOJOURNS BEYOND THE CHAINED DOOR ABOUT TO BE PROCLAIMED TO THE WORLD? IMAGINE MY DELIGHTED ASTONISHMENT ON HEARING THE SPY INFORM MY PARENT IN A CAUTIOUS WHISPER THAT I HAD SPENT THE NIGHT IN THE BOWER OUTSIDE THE TOMB, MY SLEEP-FILLED EYES FIXED UPON THE CREVICE WHERE THE PADLOCK PORTAL STOOD AJAR. BY WHAT MIRACLE! Had the watcher been thus deluded, I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume my perfect openness in going to the vault, confident that no one could witness my entrance. For a week I tasted to the full the joys of that charnel conviviality, which I must not describe when the thing happened, and I was born away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony. I should not have ventured out that night, for the taint of thunder was in the clouds, and a hellish phosphorescence rose from the rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. The call of the dead, too, was different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was the charred cellar on the crest of the slope whose presiding demon beckoned to me with unseen fingers. As I emerged from an intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion gone for a century once more reared its stately height The raptured vision, every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the host rather than the guest. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amidst a wild and reckless throng I was wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God man or nature. Suddenly a peal of thunder resonant, even above the din of a swinish revelry, claved the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gust of heat engulfed the house, and the roysters struck with terror at the descent of calamity which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled, shrieking into the night. I alone remained, riveted to my seat by a groveling fear, which I had never felt before, and then a second horror took possession of my soul. Burnt alive to ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds, I might never lie in the tomb of the hides. Was not my coffin prepared for me?' "'Had I not a right to rest till eternity "'among the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? Ay, I would claim my heritage of death "'even though my soul goes seeking through the ages "'for another corporeal tenement "'to represent it on that vacant slab "'in the alcove of the vault. "'Jervis Hyde should never share "'the sad fate of Polinaris. "'As the phantom of the burning house faded,' I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was the spy who had followed me to the tomb. Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon were flashes of the lightning that had so lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood by as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonishing my captors to treat me as gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar, told of a violent stroke from the heavens, and from this spot a group of curious villagers, with lanterns, were prying a small box of antique workmanship, which the thunderbolt had brought to light. Ceasing my futile and now objectless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove and was permitted to share in their discoveries. The box whose fastenings were broken by the stroke which unearthed it contained many papers and objects of value, but I had eyes for one thing alone. It was the porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled bag wig and bore the initials J. H., THE FACE WAS SUCH THAT AS I GAZED, I MIGHT WELL HAVE BEEN STUDYING MY MIRROR. ON THE FOLLOWING DAY I WAS BROUGHT TO THIS ROOM WITH BARRED WINDOWS, BUT I HAVE BEEN KEPT INFORMED OF CERTAIN THINGS THROUGH AN AGED AND SIMPLE-MINDED SERVITOR, FOR WHOM I BORE A FONDNESS IN INFANCY, AND WHO LIKE ME LOVES THE CHURCHYARD, What I have dared relate of my experiences within the vault has brought me only pitying smiles. My father, who visits me frequently, declares that at no time did I pass the chained portal and swears that the rusted padlock had not been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and that I was often watched as I slept in the bower outside the grim façade, my eyes half fixed on the crevice that leads to the interior. Against these assertions I have no tangible proof to offer, since my key to the padlock was lost in the struggle on the night of horrors. The strange things of the past which I learnt during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruits of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the ancient volumes of the family library. Had it not been for my old servant Hiram, I should have by this time become quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me, and has done that which impels me to make public at least a part of my story. A week ago he burst open the lock which chains the door of the tomb perpetually ajar and descended with a lantern into the murky depths. On a slab in an alcove he found an old but empty coffin whose tarnished plate bears the single word Jarvis. In that coffin and in that vault They have promised me I shall be buried. You've been listening to The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft, who once said, almost nobody dances sober unless they happen to be insane. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed being with you, but now I must go but I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me.